Hi, and welcome to Decoding AQ, helping you to learn the tools, mindsets, and actions to thrive in an ever-changing world. Good morning, afternoon, or evening, wherever the time is where you're listening from, and welcome to the next episode of Decoding AQ. Today with me, I have Mark Babbitt, and he is the co-author of Good Comes First. And you're also based in Colorado, Colorado Springs from the US, so welcome. Well, thank you. And uh, and welcome to uh, virtually to Colorado, where we just had a, a spring blizzard yesterday and we're wow. enveloped in snow. So for all those those of you in sunnier conditions, I am incredibly jealous right now. Well, actually, Mark, we've been pretty blessed. It's been some poor weather here in the UK, but today it's been a blissful sunny day. Uh, my wife's been out she doesn't work on Fridays and she's been in the garden getting the seeds planted and getting things ready. So it's been a, an absolutely wonderful day. So not to uh, give the contrast, but that's what happens thanks, in the world. Thanks for that, Ross. <laughs> <laughs> so in my uh, bit of internet stalking, Mark, I uncovered a few interesting things that I just want to share with the audience and then we'll, we'll dive into a bit of your story. But you describe yourself as a culture architect. So I'm going to be fascinated to dig in that a little bit. But as a, a executive and career coach, a blogger and speaker, and in fact, on many top lists. So in the top 100 leadership speakers of Inc. magazine, and also top 50 leadership innovators, uh, in addition to entrepreneur, Forbes, Inc., Economist, uh, Harvard Business Review, lots of different things that you get up to in terms of your writing and communicating your voice, your thoughts, and, and your ideas. So I think where I'd like to start off with, Mark, is maybe just about the book, Good Come First. Where did the title come from? So, Ross, that's an interesting story. We, me, uh, we, uh, Chris Edmonds, um, a wonderful man and a good friend, uh, co-author of Good Comes First, we, we were struggling a bit on how to talk about culture architecture specifically how to build an uncompromising company culture that didn't just dive into the same stuff. I'll use a, a clean word that everybody had already been talking to about for 10 years, the end of autocratic leadership, uh, the end of the command and control mindset, the way we've always done it, which we actually labeled twatty syndrome because, because of the acronym. It, we were tired of having the same conversations. We weren't inter energized any longer by going to mostly old white guys who, who were not picking on them. They just happened to be the demographic that makes up 76% of our leadership uh, workforce and, and beating our heads against the wall with that, with that same conversation. So, so we'd written this manuscript, this is pre-pandemic, We'd written a, a manuscript. We were 99% done with it. And it had already been accepted by the publisher. And, and we didn't like it. We, we, weren't, we weren't happy with it. And this is going to sound weird, but thanks to the pandemic, we had to stop and reset. And, and we, we ended up talking to a brilliant man named Mark Levy out of New York. And, and he said, well, first of all, your, your, your title's all wrong. And, and, and it sound, you sound like old white guys. Well, we are old white guys. That's part of the, that's part of the problem. We're old white guys tired of talking to old white guys. And, and in the first paragraph we had written, 
leaders must now ensure that good comes first. And, and he said, you bozos, that's your title. That, that, that's your, that's your, that's your Jim Collins title. And, and so, and that's what it really came down to was leaders who put good first, who are capable of adapting toward good. The data was clear that those are the companies people actually wanted to work for, that they wanted to bring their whole soul their, their intellect, their, their physical well-being to work every day. And, and it was in pursuit of good. And this is not a, this is not a new thing. This has been around since, you know, since, uh, uh, you know, the early biblical days, the people who put good first f- feel better about themselves and, and do better work and, and are better colleagues and are better, more respectful, uh, uh, workmates. And, and so that's, that's where the title came from. And we have Mark Levy to think for that because we weren't smart enough to think of it ourselves. So it's often hard, isn't it? When you're so inside something to see it and uh, those nice little flashes of brilliance from the outside view is often helpful, helpful. And so in terms of where you, you know, speak to these other white guy leaders, <laughs> you know, to create this kind of more purposeful, more positive and productive work culture. When you say good comes first, what do you define as good? Well, another great question. So we start the book off by saying we can't define good for you uh, because right or wrong, everybody's definition of good is different. And it isn't just our definition versus yours, the other old white guy or a, a person of color or anybody else. It's, it's a function of what do we respect most? What do we covet most? What gets us out of bed in the morning? And it's going to be different. For instance, we, we just did a comparison for a, a keynote that we did where we compared good for a company in New York City that was substantially different than, than a company in Huntsville, Alabama. And their uh, religious backgrounds, their uh, socioeconomic backgrounds, the urban versus rural backgrounds, they're definitely, although they both absolutely nailed it when they came to the, the values they espoused and, in, and there was a lot of, of crossover, the behaviors that we asked them to define to, to determine whether they're living those values or not were completely different because their priorities were different. So, so in, in a nutshell, we say we don't care how you define good as long as you live up to our foundational principle, which is equally value, respect, and results. And, and we came to that, that principle because when we backed up ourselves and looked at, well, what really, what, what does good comes first mean? It meant a respectful workplace and, and not just respectful, just to be respectful. We aren't, we aren't going to sit around the campfire and sing Kumbaya songs because then nothing gets done. Right. The, the, the culture as an architect must be purposeful and positive and productive. And if we're not productive, we don't have a company anymore. Or we don't have a nonprofit anymore, or, you know, or we're not serving each other well because we don't have the resources necessary to do that. Right. So, so we, we're not saying to leaders, 
look, you've been focused on results for decades, like since the industrial age began. We're not asking you to stop that. We're just saying that um, uh, uh, an absolute focus on results means you're doing exactly half your job. The other half of your job now, and not in the future of work, right now, is to create a respectful workplace. It's interesting, isn't it, where we can, you know, see things in concept. We can think about them in theory. And then in reality, it shows up in a whole host of mess, right? So we can go in with this intent, right? We can read a book, we can hear somebody, we can read an article, and we, you know, turn up Monday morning, whether that's on Zoom or physical. And I don't think anybody wants to create a bad culture by design, um, but it happens. So what are the things that you've seen that starts that creeping in that maybe people aren't as aware of in the same um, thought of when you're on the inside, you can't see the title of the book, but it needs to be when you're maybe in a bad culture, you might see the outcomes of all oh, people leaving or things uh, there, but you might not really understand or get a handle on maybe what some of the causes are. So uh, what's your thoughts around that of how do you maybe head it off at the pass? Or if you've got it, how do you correct it or deal with it? Let me first say, Ross, that and you, and you hit on this, and, and this may be the direction that you thought this answer would go, and here it is. Uh, cultures are not typically done by design. They're not intentional. Matter of fact, most of them are accidental. And, and we never, we talk, we talk a lot, especially let's just say we're in the startup world, or we're in an established Fortune 100 company. We know what our product is, or we want it to be. We've, got, we've done extensive research on who our market might be, uh, how we serve others, what our profit margins are, and 8 million other results-oriented um, metrics and uh, tangible outcomes. But we never sit down and go, what, what kind of a company do I want to run? And, and notice I said, I want to run because Culture leadership is cannot be delegated. It, you can't you can't go to HR, which way too many companies do, and say, "Gee, our company culture right now really sucks. You need to fix this." No, no, no. That is that's absolutely not the way it works. Well, the other side of that is if let's just say you're a, a startup that's two years old. Well, whether you like it or not, you already have a culture. And, and if you're a Fortune 100 company, Fortune 5000 company, you certainly already have a culture. And, and it's the good news is it's never too late to step back and go, okay, I want, I've been on the inside. I don't really know what my culture is. Maybe I believed a little too much uh, uh, about what was said in our About Us page or in the first paragraph of the job descriptions. Maybe it's really not like that and i and i need to sit back and assess this culture because if i'm noticing that it's not working my my frontline employees the people serving my customers definitely know it's not working so so and if you don't mind i'll give you a quick example and and i'm not saying this to prop myself up but just just to show you how accidental cultures happen so 1999 i very suddenly became a single father of four kids and and I was in Silicon Valley and running a marketing company and had, you know, clients like IBM and Toshiba and Sun Microsystems and 
And, but I was working a hundred hours a week and somebody else was raising my kids and that was no longer an option. And so I, I, I reworked the company culture right there on the spot. And I moved me and my kids up to Incline Village and I started commuting down when I had to, but mostly I started, this is 1999, I started remote working. And, and when I did go in, the kids came with me, the, dog, the dogs came with me. And so we built this amazing culture that happened to coincide with moving to brand new offices where every time you walked in our company, there were kids there. And not just my kids, 24 employees had their, their kids there after school or people brought their dogs to work. And we built this accidental culture that was incredibly family oriented and dog friendly and customers loved it. We, the kids, the dogs closed more business than we did. And, and that became our culture. And we, we never had to, we never had to advertise for a job. We never had to, to go to a recruiter. People heard about our culture within, you know, a very stodgy marketing industry and said, oh, I want to work for those guys. I want to bring my dog to work. I want to have a place for my kid to go after school. And so that became our culture. And by the way, it's been my company's cultures ever since. Uh, I, I still, I haven't, I haven't worked in a real office since 1999 and I, and I won't because that's against my personal culture. So some, the, all of that to say sometimes accidental, accidental cultures are quite good, right? Look at the early days of Zappos. Look at the early days of Facebook, um, even Amazon, which is now known for its incredibly archaic, overly competitive culture. At one point, everybody in Seattle wanted to work for Amazon. Everybody. Now you got to be. You have to have just the right mindset, and you have to have just the the right level of aggressiveness to even fit in there. But at one time, that culture was considered like the best culture in in corporate America. It's interesting how you described certain events that triggered a shift. So in, in your, your example, some of these external environmental shifts in people's lives that then take a different course for the way in which we show up at work and then the way in which others can show up alongside. And I've heard a lot of times in lots of conversations around recruitment of, of cultural fit. And I've had other conversations where that would just create this bland echo chamber. And the, this new idea of sort of asking, new, you know, cultural ad to how do we create an environment that is diverse, but also inclusive, that allows friction, but in ways that it doesn't break something, that actually it is, uh, as you said, about respect. And this isn't easy to do, and it needs to evolve as you internally evolve as an individual, as your environment and as your industry shifts. And so that constant sort of movement around culture, like you say, you can't abdicate this out to a department. It is a living, breathing thing. I wonder if you can take me back to maybe environments where it was awful. You, you've said, you know, a lot of company cultures suck. Um, what was one that you were in that sucked and what happened? What, what did it change? How did it change? And what did you do about it when you were in an environment that wasn't great? I, I will tell you, um, in my, in my, uh, in my personal life, I, I served, uh, the United States, uh, in the air force and, uh, and, and did what every military trained engineer 
does when you get out of the military, you go to Silicon Valley and get a job. And, and I, um, I, I, I felt guilty because I felt ungrateful. I was living in Sunnyvale, California, under the palm trees, swimming pool, beautiful condo, um, new wife, newborn baby at home. And I hated it. I hated every minute of it. It was same commute, walk to the same front door, go to the same cubicle, stare at the same monitor for eight years. And, and I did everything I could to, to change the culture. I tried to lighten it up. I, I tried to, I, I, I tried to make it more entrepreneurial because that was my, that was my, you know, um, an entrepreneur is probably my spirit animal. And I, and, but, but I was working for a very old school Catholic Boston based um, company run by a very autocratic Russian CEO. And, and I, for eight years, I tried to change the culture. And I will say um, everything I learned about subcultures happened in that 1980s, 90s decade. It, it is I quickly learned that even though my company culture may not be the perfect fit for me, I can help co-create a subculture where we actually enjoy our work and we support each other. And we're, we're not just mentor, not just managers. We serve as mentors to the young engineers coming in. And so I loved everything about our subculture, but then I tried to exert myself and I tried to say, well, look, we've created this little um, contagious pocket of excellence over here. We're doing some amazing work. Our customers love us. We're setting sales records. We're setting service records, right? We're, we're doing everything right. Why don't you guys take a look at what we're doing and let it influence what you're doing? And the door was just slammed shut. And so within a week of, of that door being forcibly slammed shut without even talking to my then wife, um, and maybe that's why she's my then wife, uh, I threw up my hands and said, I'm, I can't do this. I'm done. And threw the keys of the company car on the boss's desk and, and walked away from a six figure job. And, and which at the time was huge money and just said, I'm not living my life like this anymore. This, the, the subculture isn't enough anymore. And, and on Monday I opened, I opened my own marketing company and, uh, and never looked back. So now that's just one story. I will tell you in our work, we see, we see cultures that don't work all the time. And it, and it isn't just the big companies. It isn't just the, the ones who um, feel they must focus on shareholder, shareholder value because they're on the New York stock exchange. It goes all the way down to small faith-based nonprofits where it's just this toxic, disrespectful, demeaning, backstabbing culture where people actually start shaking you know, you close the door or you get off the train as you, as you walk into work and, and, you know, this is pre-pandemic obviously, and you start shaking, like who, nobody wants to live like that. Right. And now Ross, we're seeing, and you know, this, we're seeing it all happening again, because now companies are forcing people to come back to work post-pandemic, right? The mask, the vaccination requirements are, are all being really, and now we're asking people to come back to a culture that sucked two years ago. Well, it hasn't gotten any better. And hence the great resignation. This is yeah. 50 million people in the U S alone have left their jobs in the last 13 months, 
15 million people have voluntarily quit. And old white guy leaders want to know why? You know why. You, you just don't want to deal with it. Yeah. And I think that story articulates a real situation of what happens where at the last straw. That all of these other indicators are there. And then a last straw is a departure, a departure of some, some form. And that can be great. That's a rebirth. That's an opportunity, you know, for both the people leaving and the organization to rethink, to welcome that feedback and that information, no matter how unwelcome it may be, to give themselves permission to change. Because this uh, challenge of, you know, ah, is it something that's fixed? Is it changeable? Can we shift our culture or are we just left with the, the way it is? And I, I want to share just a quick story because I'd love your take on it. Uh, I woke up this morning to the news that a ferry company here in the UK called P&O Ferries uh, have got rid of a number of their staff. Now, they did this via a pre-recorded three-minute video on Zoom to 800 staff members to be told they were instantly out of a job. And the reality is of the way they've executed it, the, you know, all the things that were led up to that event. And now they're rehiring a cheaper set of labor force uh, to deal with because of all their reasons of pandemic losses, all sorts of things, et cetera. And uh, so it's all over the news today. Uh, that, uh, why didn't the government get involved? What are all the things of this? A straw was broken and the execution was really poor. And now we have a you know, big media backlash of how decisions were made around a, a particular culture in an organization. And I'd just love to hear your kind of take from that small bit of information that I've given you of this story of what, what some of the challenges that might be going on, what are being faced. And even on another scale, if it hasn't been an exodus by your design, i.e. a resignation, but it may be that you're faced with something that you didn't want to resign, but you were told, sorry, we can't employ you. What goes on in that situation and how can people deal with it? Well, I'll tell you, when this, when this first happened and, and, and it made international news, better, the, better, uh, the CEO of Better.com over Zoom, at least it wasn't a pre-recorded conversation, fired 900 people over Zoom. And he thought that was absolutely okay because we talk on Zoom now. We have every feasible combination or conversation on Zoom. Why wouldn't we lay people off digitally, right? And, and okay, fine. You're the first person to do it, or at least on a large scale. You're still an idiot, but you, we're going we're gonna to give you a pass, at least until we learn more, right? Well, two weeks after it happened, you learn all the dynamics and all the particulars and all the things that went into the decision and you find out just how disrespectful the CEO and the company chose to be, right? Well, now, maybe not on, on this scale and 800 that happened this morning is certainly the largest I've heard since better, but we've heard of companies, 110 people, 200 people, 50 people. And you know what their, their emphasis was, Ross? We're going to do this on Zoom because it's convenient for us, but we can't, we can't be like better.com. We, 
we can't we can't let this out. It, it can't be become a PR issue. Really? So it's okay to be disrespectful if it doesn't make national news, right? And so the the whole concept and and the reason I'm bringing the the ferry company knew better by now. They knew better, and they still chose to do it. And it probably indicates that their company culture wasn't really great to begin with, because that's not how that's not a respectful decision. It's 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 not a human decision. It, and it it makes me think of you know how do you behave when you when your mum's not watching. and that situation of how do you behave when someone's not watching is a real measure of someone's values and ethics let alone how do you behave when you know people are going to be watching you know I mean it's it's crazy I feel the same as you that maybe you give a pass the first time but they should know better to flip flip it the other way I know that you for a number of years now nearly a decade or so have been really trying to help leaders understand and improve their workplace culture. And you have, you know, this uh, WQ index of how to do that, how do teams really work well together? So from your example of a subculture and getting that functioning and then, hey, you were in a -a whack-a-mole game. And as soon as you tried to get the mothership to do it, you got the whack-a-mole on, is that I guess there's going to be so much differences, even in small companies, of where there's subcultures and subbits going on. How do you deal with that? How do you assess it? And how do you improve it? And how do you not play whack-a-mole when you pay, play, get on the pedestal and let's you know celebrate what's going on here and try and continually play leapfrog of betterment? So give me a little bit of how it came about. How did WQ come about? And some stories of where this has given some real great impact, Mark, for some of your clients. So, so maybe this is why your work and, and ours is is um, is so cohesive, Ross. Because just like you you um, installed the the concept of AQ, we we installed WQ or workplace intelligence to to help leaders explain the difference between ideal and current and. And we couldn't go to them and say, your company culture really sucks. People hate working for you because there's no, the about us page does not say that. The careers page does not say that. My third quarter shareholder report says we're doing really great. Well, no, you're not doing great. People hate working for you. And so WQ for us was a way to say, we can now quantify objectively exactly how people behave within your workplace and and wq for us is well let's define it just for a second where eq is individual it's emotional intelligence of an individual wq is the emotional intelligence of you will if you will of a work team or a subculture and and the reality is that the CEO sitting up on the 62nd floor of a, of a building in New York or Atlanta, he knows his culture, right? Or, or she knows what it's like to walk into a boardroom, but she doesn't know what it's like to work on the second floor. And so WQ allows us by team, by department, by location, by country, if need be, 
to determine the level of workplace intelligence within a certain team. And more, just as important, it tells us what those teams are doing really well, what's working really well for them and their customers and their communities, and what's not. And then once a leader has that completely, absolutely objective data, now they can say, well, maybe I should forget about the way we've always done it. And maybe I should go look at this group over here who really seems to have their act together and their customers love them. And they're and 40% of their employees have referred other colleagues and, and, and their friends and even their relatives to work for us. But over here, only 2% of the people have referred their friends and their relatives and their respected colleagues. Well, what are they doing over here in this, what we now call a contagious pocket of excellence? What are they doing that we can emulate? And here's the challenge with that, Ross, is if you get that leader who just says, I'm not going to change, I'm not going to adapt, I'm not willing to accept this objective input, well, then all of this data, all this data collection was for naught. Because if you're just going to keep doing it the way you've always done it, and if you're not going to accept this input and then adapt to this new mechanism, this new culture, this new, this different contagious pocket of excellence, then it doesn't help you. It doesn't. It, it, so my experience with subculture led us to finally answer your question to workplace intelligence or WQ, because we knew within our work that, yes, the company had a culture. And sometimes that culture was great. And sometimes it filtered all the way down. But sometimes that comp company culture went to a division president or, or a department manager. And that person was a jerk and, and completely disrespectful and, and did not validate the work of others and, and did not care at all about personal professional growth. Just get your damn work done. And the company that no matter how good the company culture was until it got to that point, it was now terrible. And so workplace intelligence allows us to objectively analyze through, through both interviews and through surveys exactly what it's like to work here at this desk in this department for this boss. It's interesting, isn't it? When we, even sometimes you described a couple of times there when, when we see it, does it drive change? Right. So even if we get a reflection and um, it might be something that we don't like the look of, you know, we don't like the reality and our immune system comes up with defense, you know, in terms of, well, you know, you need a state of vulnerability, a state of confidence that allows you to learn, allows you to shift. And if you're already feeling a little bit, you know, attacked or a little bit, hey, I'm not as good as I perhaps thought, how do we respond to that is a really challenging thing to do on the real floor. <laughs> you know, when you're trying to have respect and feeling, oh, I need respect by continuing to have the answers rather than being vulnerable of, maybe I didn't have them. Maybe I need to adopt some things from that other division or that other area. And I think it goes in real challenge for people when they are feeling vulnerable, how to help even them through that shift and to guide them through it. What would be some of the techniques or strategies that maybe 
in a one-to-one coaching situation, they might open up to you, Mark, and say, yeah, actually, I am really struggling, but it might not reflect in how they're operating with their teams or their divisions. Uh, I would imagine there's many people who feel a little bit like that, that they're almost behaving. They can see a bit of it, but they're not ready to really come to terms with it and they need help to come to terms with it. What do you do in those situations? How, how do you think about that challenge and how could people who may see themselves in that um, start that shift? First, first, I'll tell you that shifts happen for uh, three reasons. One, somebody has an epiphany and, and it might be a, a change in their family situation. It might maybe they had a, a heart attack and and uh, we're, we're fortunate enough to, to survive. And now they're literally laying in their hospital bed and said, I, 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 I'm not going to be that, that person anymore, right? Um, so that's one. Two is, you, it, we, we, call, we refer to it insurmountable market conditions, right? For instance, the great resignation right now, there are companies out there that have lost 30% of their workforce in the last nine to 12 months. 30%, they walked away. Right, like we've been, we in some cases we we've been supplying your paycheck, we've been supplying your security, which is what we thought is what you cared about for 20, 30 years, and now you just walk away. And and those ins, insurmountable market conditions, market conditions make us aware, right? And the third is a leadership change. Most of our clients come to us having become the new CEO or, or, or the new division leader or the new team leader. And they say, I, I know it needs to be different because I've lived it. I've worked here. I've, I've, I just got promoted or, or I knew this company's reputation before I accepted this job and I'm not going to let those conditions continue. And so the trouble is, and this is where we get to the adaptability portion, especially if you're, if we can label you as a, as one of these old white guy leaders and you're in your late fifties to early seventies, and you've only ever led one way and you were not taught to be vulnerable. You, matter of fact, vulnerability was weakness. Exactly. Right? Yeah. You, you were taught to be decisive, which means you don't accept input from others, right? You have all these traits that in through 1970s were, were made you a terrific leader, but now it makes you suck. Well, that's the time where people go, you know what? I want to leave a different legacy than what I started. And I'm, and I'm going to accept input and I'm going to become more vulnerable and more aware. And, and it starts with being more self-aware. And before my heart attack, before market conditions changed, before I took this new role, I was one kind of a leader and I can't be that anymore, or I don't want to be that anymore. It's, it's killing my soul to be that kind of human being. And that's where real change happens. That's where, that's where even this, the, the staunchest command and control leader says, I, I'm going to let go of some of that control and I'm going to let people in and I'm, and I'm personally going to adapt. So that enables others to adapt. Yeah. And that's the key. But, but I'll tell you, the, op- the opposite side of this is we can't go to a company and go, you know, your company culture sucks, right? <laughs> right? <laughs> we're, we're, we're no- nobody's going to pick up the book with that approach. Nobody's going to ask yeah. us, invite us in for a conversation with that approach. 
th- that that vulnerability, that self-awareness, whether it's through an epiphany or or because they just had no choice or because they made a, a conscious leadership decision uh, choice, they've changed companies, they've uh, they've they've moved from from corporate to nonprofit uh, or, or or some other leadership change. That's where that's where culture culture architecture now comes to the forefront because now people are saying this this go around my company culture will not be incidental it will not be accidental i'm going to think about this ahead of time and i'm me and and the people around me my fellow leaders my key employees my customers my community they're all going to help me co-create this amazing company culture where people feel respected they're validated for their work. We we pay a way above the average because we we love we actually love the people that work here, and we don't want to lose them. And we're going to treat people very well, so they treat our customers well. It, it's one of these challenges, isn't it? Where um, it's not about coming to terms with the fact that the way you made decisions before was wrong. It was right in that context, but we can make a new one tomorrow. So for those people being able to unlearn everything that got them to where they are, all the successes when you talked about, you know, the the character traits or the styles or the behaviours that got them to the position. Now the world has shifted. The environment's changed. They need to shift the playbook. And that isn't about going backwards and saying, oh, what I did before was wrong. It's now, no, I can do something better and I can unlock and expand an opportunity. And I think that shift, what we've seen in some of our work is, a lot of it is the right framing, the right languages. So when you become self-aware is giving people just that permission to shift without a judgment on past. Um, and so that they can move forward in a, in a more freeing way. So I'd like to right. just touch. Go on. Yeah, just real, real quick. I just want to add to what you just said, because you, you asked earlier, well, if you're sitting across the desk in a one-on-one situation, you just kicked on one of the key elements for us is, and we tell leaders, guilt and creativity are mutually exclusive. You can't do both at the same time. And, and so you're absolutely right. What happened in the past was right at the time, but it's not right now, my friend. And you have to give yourself permission to leave that other stuff behind because that's baggage. That's not helping you. Leave it behind. Let it sit. And, and, and let's, let's let the creativity kick in so we can build something better now. Yeah, I, I agree to unlock, to be grateful, to say thank you to the who I was, but allow me to be something new. Um, and I think everyone reaches that at various phases, whether it's each morning when you look out on the sun and say, well, what kind of person do I want to be today? A <laughs> little bit better than yesterday in some areas. Um, absolutely, we all would love that, but often it's hard to see and hard to do. And that's why having people around us and having the stimulus around us is, is so important um, to do. And if we have, you know, perhaps this rate of change that's going on everywhere, whether it's the disruption that was accelerated by COVID or technology or big people shifts, we only have to just close our eyes for a you know, 12 hour period, get up the next day and things look a little bit different. What are maybe some of the just very simple tips that leaders can do to maybe even understand 
cultural architecture. Um, and therefore the tips, you, you mentioned a few things of being deliberate versus accidental. When we bring that down to a practical, tactical thing, where could they start with that to begin their journey of re-architecturing a culture that works for them now? That is, that's the, that is the best possible question. And, and the answer is surprisingly simple, Russ. It's what, how quickly do you reward desirable, productive, positive behaviors? And the flip side of that is which destructive, demeaning, um, hurtful behaviors, hurtful to both the people in the business and the business. So both respect and results hurtful. What, what, what behaviors do you tolerate? Because we build culture on the behaviors and the values rewarded. We tear down culture on, based on the, on the behaviors that other people watch us tolerate. And, and there's, a, there's a, a really simple example of this. Salespeople, there's always that one person in sales. And they are undoubtedly one of the highest performers. They meet their quota every time. They, they do whatever it takes to hit the numbers. They're making a boatload of money, and that's what they're driven by. But they don't treat others with respect. And they're demeaning to women. And, and they, 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 uh, they treat people of color maybe differently than they treat people of the, you know, the color they are. And, and it's all about me. Well, the sales manager, the VP of sales says, well, you just described Rick and we can't lose Rick. He's our best sales guy. So you are consciously tolerating these sexist, racist, demeaning, discounting behaviors. So that's your company culture. Whether you like it or not, that's your company culture. You are racist and sexist, at least within that subculture, and that's okay with you. Well, you've compromised. And, and once you've compromised your values, now we lose not just trust, but we lose respect. And once we lose, we know now, the data shows us to have that productive, positive, purposeful culture, respect must be as valued within the culture as, as results. And so... We tell people, look at every employee you have and start with your leaders and, and say, are they a high performance match? Do they do their jobs well? Great. Of course you want to keep them. But now you need to look and see if they're a high values match. We've helped you define the values that you want to live by. And we've helped you define three to five behaviors that would indicate whether a person's living those values are they exhibiting those behaviors? And if they're not, they're a low values match. And no matter how, how great they are at the performance side, if they're a low values match, unless you're compromising, they can't be here. So we'll mentor them, we'll train them, we'll coach them, we'll do everything possible to help them thrive within not just performance expectations, but respect expectations and values and behaviors. We'll give them every opportunity to raise that level of their game. But if they do not, if we let them stay, we are compromising and, and we have sacrificed our company culture for the dollar, for the revenue, for the sales. 
And once you do that, it, it's all over. It's so now the opposite of that, Ross, is, to, is, is the world knows that one person that's a total jerk and only cares about himself or herself and, and doesn't care about the culture and doesn't, doesn't even try to fit in, doesn't try to make the world a better place. And now a leader goes, you know what, Rick, you can't be here anymore. You, we, we love you, your work. We love your performance. We love your productivity, but you're making other people feel disrespected and you can't be here anymore. We're showing you the door. As soon as that happens, the entire sales floor goes, hallelujah. It's about time. Now let's go get some work done, right? And now we've, we've established through our actions what, what we stand for and what we won't stand for. And now we've proven to everybody on the floor we're not going to compromise when it comes to company culture. And we're not going to let somebody treat others disrespectfully. It's not who we are. It's not who we, we will be. We will show you the door too if you go that route. And boom, now, now we have a solid company culture where people actually want to show up every day. It's interesting. The two aspects that people need to think about is what are the behaviors that we're going to reward, not just the results that we're going to reward, and what are the behaviors that we're not going to tolerate, and then act on that non-tolerance is just a really easy way to begin that journey of deliberate architecting a, a culture to know it and it it made me think actually as you were talking of robocop and the prime directives you know what are your company's prime directives you know not i will do no harm to other humans you know what are they do you know what they are we might go the values and i see that time and time again but actually what's the flip of those things what are the things that show up that are the bad tolerances the principles that that underpin some of those because if you haven't thought about it and you haven't communicated it, you're already accepting a whole variety of things. I've got one last piece. I'm so conscious of time as well, Mark. But my, my last piece is this challenge of it's a personal thing that I'm trying to deal with. And I don't think it's any different to many others is when I ran my previous business, I prided myself on having a good court sense. You know, we had a, a staff, a small company, had 25 people, and I could go in and I could feel what was going on. You know, it's a bit like in sports, you know, playing the fullback, whatever. You could see the various movements, the different bits, and you'd be able to tap it in the areas before it went too wrong. Um, and you'd be able to catch them when they're doing it right, when it goes right. Now we're in this hybrid challenge. And whilst, you know, I've got epic amount of trust, we've got a real distributed team across so many time zones. and this balance between, oh, we see the results, but how can we see the behaviors that go on in breakout rooms, in other pieces, in other areas, for me to be able to celebrate that? And um, the culture we have is we start every meeting with a positive focus. Who are you grateful for in the team of what they've shown up so we can start to just bring it to light? But I think it's a real challenge for many businesses as much as an opportunity of culture in this hybrid world. So perhaps in the last couple of minutes, I know it's a big topic, but um, what are the areas around a hybrid opportunity for our cultures that you think would be good things for companies to start to think about or opportunities that they could uncover in that sort of environment? 
the, 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 first of all, this could be a 45 minute conversation all by itself. You, I'm sure it could, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, Maybe we'll have to do part two. Mark. Yeah, we'll do part two. Um, so th this is where I'd like to think, you know, because I've worked from home since 1999 and, and we've learned over that time what works and what doesn't. And, and I'll tell you the number the number one thing that we're that we're telling leaders to focus on now, because in the old, you know, when we're all in the office, most of us managers were focused on two things, compliance and conformity. Just show up on time, get your work done in, in the amount of time we ask you to do it and go home at the end of the day. Right. And and it, it just can't be like that anymore. It can't be that management mindset is is gone and it's and it's not just gone for today as we're coming out of the pandemic it's gone gone and gen y and gen z are going to make damn sure it's gone gone because they don't want to be ruled they want to they want a collaborative environment and and so we're, we're telling people you got to let go of a lot of issues and and you got to let you got to let people since in the hybrid world, you're automatically giving up when, where, and how the work gets done, right? That's a given. You, you no longer control that, right? So how then do you maintain that modicum of control, the compliance, the conformity? Well, don't replace that, completely replace that with building not necessarily a best friend relationship, but a pr productive one-on-one -on -one mentor relationship and start talking about what, what's really working well for you right now in this hybrid environment, what's working well, what's not, what, what resources do you need? How can I help you? I mean, you're already being, you know, reasonably productive or incredibly productive, but What's what's keeping you up at night? What's your barrier to success? And once you once a leader starts asking those questions, well, now the person's going, wow, she actually cares about this hybrid environment. And so that's that's the secret, Ross. Replace all of the compliance and conformity and control with building that mental relationship where you don't just care about the work, but you care about the person doing the work. And that that's how you build culture within a within okay. a hybrid environment because you don't control anything else. Yeah. And it's these two two pieces, isn't it? It's how can I help? Not with the undercurrent of I think you're not doing well, is I believe in you. I believe in you and how can I help? And that context is a, a great moment. Mark, if people want to, um, I say if people will want to get in touch with you, how do they best do it? Well, the first thing I'll tell you is um, both Chris and I, we still manage all of our own social media. We handle everything personally. So we're on Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, everywhere. Um, he even got me on Instagram, which I haven't quite figured out yet, but I'm working on it. I'm, I'm Yes, I'm an old white guy. I'll figure it out. Um, but also uh, visit goodcomesfirst.com. That's that's where you can learn right. quite a bit about the book and, and our process for writing the book. And frankly, what it you, you might learn enough on the site just to learn whether a, a culture change initiative is right for you and your company and, and then reach out. We're happy to help. Fantastic. Mark, it's been a real pleasure. And I just want to share my gratitude for a great conversation, one where I've got lots of principles to reflect on 
and think about and no doubt are going to have positive impact for my team uh, as well. So I want to thank you for that. And I look forward to continued collaboration with you, Mark. Thank you for the conversation, Ross. Hi, everyone. I, we, Mark and I have just been having a great conversation after I clicked stop. And in our conversation, it reminded me, I didn't ask Mark the question of, when was the last time you did something for the first time? And what was it? So for me personally, I I went fly fishing, and and I know that it's got nothing to do with work or culture or books or anything, but or maybe I, everything, or maybe my, everything. My my, uh, I have five children, um, ranging from thirty four to fifteen. Oh, well, fifteen next week, and my youngest son wanted to learn how to fly fish, and I went, okay, let's do it, and so. There's a pond right behind our house here in Colorado. And we bought the gear. It's sitting right there. And, and we, God, we sucked. Um, there's, there's going to need to be lessons involved. But it was, it was invigorating just to try something new and to laugh, just to laugh when, when we realized just how bad we were at this and to just be able to laugh about it. It was, it was, a, it was a fun moment. Thanks, Mark. And that piece of when we do something that we don't know how to do, to face it with a smile, to face it with humor, how might we bring that into our work? How might we go to a place where, hey, we're doing something for the first time. It might be we've done it many times, we've got new eyes, or the environment's new that makes it different. How can we face it with a smile and a bit of humor? So thanks again, Mark, and for the opportunity to get that question in. And thanks for everybody for listening. Do you have the level of adaptability to survive and thrive the rapid changes ahead? Has your resilience got more comeback than a yo-yo? Do you have the ability to unlearn in order to reskill, upskill and break through? Find out today and uncover your adaptability profile and score, your AQ. Visit aqai.io to gain your personalized report across 15 scientifically validated dimensions of adaptability. For a limited time, enter code PODCAST65 for a complimentary AQME assessment. AQAI, transforming the way people, teams and organisations navigate change. Thank you for listening to this episode of Decoding AQ. Please make sure you subscribe on your favourite podcast directory and we'd love to hear your feedback. Please do leave a review and be sure to tune in next time for more insights from our amazing guests.